Chapter Six of the Longest Journey by E. M. Forster, read for you by Julie Pandia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Longest Journey, Chapter Six. He did not stop for the funeral. Mr. Pembroke thought that he had a bad effect on Agnes, and prevented her from acquiescing in the tragedy as rapidly as she might have done. As he expressed it, one must not court sorrow, and he hinted to the young man that they desired to be alone. Rickie went back to the silts. He was only there a few days. As soon as term opened, he returned to Cambridge, for which he longed passionately. The journey thither was now familiar to him, and he took pleasure in each landmark. The fair valley of Tewin Water, the cutting into Hitchin where the train traverses the chalk, Baldock Church, Royston with its promise of downs, were nothing in themselves, but dearer stages in the pilgrimage towards the abode of peace. On the platform he met friends. They had all had pleasant vacations. It was a happy world. The atmosphere alters. Cambridge, according to her custom, welcomed her sons with open drains. Petty Curry was up, so was Trinity Street, and navvies peeped out of King's Parade. Here it was gas, there electric light, but everywhere something, and always a smell. It was also the day that the wheels fell off the station tram, and Rickie, who was naturally inside, was among the passengers who sustained no injury but a shock, and had as hearty a laugh over the mishap afterwards as any one. Tillard fled into a hansom, cursing himself for having tried to do the thing cheaply. Hornblower also swept past, yelling derisively, with his luggage neatly piled above his head. "'Let's get out and walk,' muttered Ansel. But Rickie was succoring a distressed female, Mrs. Aberdeen. "'Oh, Mrs. Aberdeen, I never saw you. I am so glad to see you. I am so very glad.' Mrs. Aberdeen was cold." She did not like being spoken to outside the college, and was also distrait about her basket. Hitherto no genteel eye had even seen inside it, but in the collision its little calico veil fell off, and there was revealed nothing. The basket was empty, and never would hold anything illegal. All the same she was distrait, and, "'We shall meet later, sir, I dare see,' was all the greeting Ricky got from her. "'Now what kind of life has Mrs. Aberdeen?' he exclaimed, as he and Ansel pursued the station road. "'Here these betters come and make us comfortable. We owe an enormous amount to them. Their wages are absurd, and we know nothing about them. Off they go to Barnwell, and then their lives are hidden. I just know that Mrs. Aberdeen has a husband, but that's all. She never will talk about him. Now I do so want to fill in her life. I see one half of it. What's the other half?' She may have a real jolly house, in good taste, with a little garden and books and pictures. Or, again, she mayn't. But, in any case, one ought to know. I know she'd dislike it, but she oughtn't to dislike. After all, betters are to blame for the present lamentable state of things just as much as gentlefolk. She ought to want me to come. She ought to introduce me to her husband. They had reached the corner of Hill's Road. Ansel spoke for the first time. He said, Ugh! Drains? Yes, spiritual cesspool. Ricky laughed. I expected it from your letter. The one you never answered? I answered none of your letters. You are quite hopeless by now. You can go to the bad, but I refuse to accompany you. 
I refuse to believe that every human being is a moving wonder of supreme interest in tragedy and beauty, which was what the letter in question amounted to. You find plenty who will believe it. It's a very popular view among people who are too idle to think. It saves them the trouble of detecting the beautiful from the ugly, the interesting from the dull, the tragic from the melodramatic. You had just come from Sawston, and were apparently carried away by the fact that Miss Pembroke had the usual amount of arms and legs. Ricky was silent. He had told his friend how he felt, but not what had happened. Ansel could discuss love and death admirably, but somehow he would not understand lovers or a dying man, and in the letter there had been scant allusion to these concrete facts. Would Cambridge understand them either? He watched some dons who were peeping into an excavation and throwing up their hands with humorous gestures of despair. These men would lecture next week on Catiline's conspiracy, on Luther, on evolution, on Catullus. They dealt with so much, and they had experienced so little. Was it possible he would ever come to think Cambridge narrow? In his short life Ricky had known two sudden deaths, and that is enough to disarrange any placid outlook on the world. He knew once for all that we are all of us bubbles on an extremely rough sea. Into this sea humanity has built, as it were, some little breakwaters, scientific knowledge, civilized restraint, so that the bubbles do not break so frequently or so soon. But the sea has not altered, and it was only a chance that he, Ansel, Tillard, and Mrs. Aberdeen had not all been killed in the tram. They waited for the other tram by the Roman Catholic Church, whose florid bulk was already receding into twilight. It is the first big building that the incoming visitor sees. "'Oh, here come the colleges!' cries the Protestant parent, and then learns that it was built by a papist who made a fortune out of movable eyes for dolls. Built out of dolls' eyes to contain idols. That, at all events, is the legend and the joke. It watches over the apostate city, taller by many a yard than anything within, and asserting, however wildly, that here is eternity, stability, and bubbles unbreakable upon a windless sea. A costly hymn-tune announced five o'clock, and in the distance the more lovable note of St. Mary's could be heard, speaking from the heart of the town. Then the tram arrived, the slow, stuffy tram that plies every twenty minutes between the unknown and the market-place, and took them past the desecrated grounds of Downing, past Addenbrooke's hospital, girt like a Venetian palace with a mantling canal, past the Fitzwilliam, towering upon immense obstructions like any Roman temple, right up to the gates of one's own college, which looked like nothing else in the world. The porters were glad to see them, but wished it had been a hansom. "'Our luggage,' explained Ricky, "'comes in the hotel omnibus if you would kindly pay a shilling for mine.' Ansel turned aside to some large lighted windows, the abode of a hospitable dawn, and from other windows there floated familiar voices— and the familiar mistakes in a Beethoven sonata. The college, though small, was civilized and proud of its civilization. It was not sufficient glory to be a blue there, nor an additional glory to get drunk. Many a maiden lady who had read that Cambridge men were sad dogs was surprised, and perhaps a little disappointed, at the reasonable life which greeted her. Miss Appleblossom, in particular, had had a tremendous shock— the sight of young fellows making tea and drinking water had made her wonder whether this was Cambridge College at all. "'It is so,' she exclaimed afterwards. "'It is just as I say. And what's more, I wouldn't have it otherwise. Stuart says it's as easy as easy to get into the swim, and not at all expensive.' The direction of the swim was determined a little by the genius of the place, for places have a genius, though the less we talk about it the better.' 
and a good deal by the tutors and resident fellows, who treated with rare dexterity the products that came up yearly from the public schools. They taught the perky boy that he was not everything, and the limp boy that he might be something. They even welcomed those boys who were neither limp nor perky, but odd, those boys who had never been at a public school at all, and such did not find a welcome everywhere. And they did everything with ease, one might almost say with nonchalance, so that the boys noticed nothing, and received education, often for the first time in their lives. But Ricky turned to none of these friends, for just then he loved his rooms better than any person. They were all he really possessed in the world, the only place he could call his own. Over the door was his name, and through the paint, like a grey ghost, he could still read the name of his predecessor. With a sigh of joy he entered the perishable home that was his for a couple of years. There was a beautiful fire, and the kettle boiled at once. He made tea on the hearthrug and ate the biscuits which Mrs. Aberdeen had brought for him up from Anderson's. Gentlemen, she said, must learn to give and take. He sighed again and again, like one who had escaped from danger. With his head on the fender and all his limbs relaxed, he felt almost as safe as he felt once when his mother killed a ghost in the passage by carrying him through it in her arms. There was no ghost now. He was frightened at reality. He was frightened at the splendors and horrors of the world. A letter from Miss Pembroke was on the table. He did not hurry to open it, for she, and all that she did, was overwhelming. She wrote like the Sibyl. Her sorrowful face moved over the stars and shattered their harmonies. Last night he saw her with the eyes of Blake, a virgin widow, tall, veiled, consecrated, with her hands stretched out against an everlasting wind. Why should she write? Her letters were not for the likes of him, nor to be read in rooms like his. "'We are not leaving Sawston,' she wrote. "'I saw how selfish it was of me to risk spoiling Herbert's career. "'I shall get used to any place. "'Now that he is gone, nothing of that sort can matter. "'Every one has been most kind, but you have comforted me most, though you did not mean to. "'I cannot think how you did it, or understood so much. "'I still think of you as a little boy with a lame leg.' I know you will let me say this, and yet when it came to the point you knew more than people who had been all their lives with sorrow and death. Ricky burnt this letter, which he ought not to have done, for it was one of the few tributes Miss Pembroke ever paid to imagination. But he felt that it did not belong to him. Words so sincere should be for Gerald alone. The smoke rushed up the chimney, and he indulged in a vision. He saw it reach the outer air and beat against the low ceiling of clouds. The clouds were too strong for it but in them was one chink revealing one star, and through this the smoke escaped into the light of stars innumerable. Then, but then the vision failed, and the voice of science whispered that all smoke remains on earth in the form of smuts, and is troublesome to Mrs. Aberdeen. "'I am jolly unpractical,' he mused, "'and what is the point of it when real things are so wonderful? Who wants visions in a world that has Agnes and Gerald?' He turned on the electric light and pulled open the table drawer. There, among spoons and corks and string, he found a fragment of a little story that he tried to write last term. It was called The Bay of the Fifteen Islets, and the action took place on St. John's Eve off the coast of Sicily. A party of tourists land on one of the islands. Suddenly the boatmen become uneasy and say that the island is not generally there. It is an extra one, and they'd better have tea on one of the ordinaries. Pooh, volcanic, says the leading tourist, and the ladies say, how interesting. 
The island begins to rock, and so do the minds of his visitors. They start and quarrel and jabber. Fingers burst up through the sand-black fingers of sea-devils. The island tilts. The tourists go mad. But just before the catastrophe, one man, integer vice galerisque purus, sees the truth. Here are no devils. Other muscles, other minds, are pulling the island to its subterranean home. Through the advancing wall of waters he sees no grisly faces, no ghastly medieval limbs, but— But what nonsense! When real things are so wonderful, what is the point of pretending? And so Ricky deflected his enthusiasms. Hitherto they had played on gods and heroes, on the infinite and the impossible, on virtue and beauty and strength. Now, with a steadier radiance, they transfigured a man who was dead and a woman who was still alive. End of chapter 6 The Longest Journey